If you'll turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 62, verses 6 through 9. Isaiah 62, verses 6 through 9 says this. I have set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day nor night. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence, and give him no rest till he establish, until he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength, Surely I will no more give thy corn to be meat for thine enemies, and the sons of the strangers shall not drink thy wine, for the which thou hast labored. But they that have gathered it shall eat it, and praise the Lord. And they that have brought it together shall drink it in the courts of my holiness. For the next few moments tonight, I want to preach what has become in the last few days a personal prayer for me. And I believe at the end of this service, we're going to see God move in a powerful way through prayer. But I want to preach from this subject, don't hold your peace. Don't hold your peace. I realize that at almost 29 years old today, I am by no means a church elder um, here. I'm not by no means a, a church elder if you consider all the great men and women of God that have invested their life into this. There's so many people I look up to and I don't have all the answers. But I have come to a point in my walk with God that I do know that there are some things that I will never ever understand about God. I know that God is not the author of confusion. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm thankful for everything that he has made very plain for us. I'm so thankful for the parts of this book that I do understand. I'm thankful that when concerning the oneness of God, that's something that we can understand and we can know him in that way. I am so thankful that we can understand what it means to be born again through repentance and baptism in Jesus' name and the infilling of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in another tongue. I'm thankful for those things. Don't misunderstand me. I'm thankful for all the things that we understand. I'm thankful that we have an understanding of holiness, not just in theory, but in some practical application to our lives. I'm thankful for all that kind of of stuff. Yet there are some things about God and there are some things about his ways that I have come to terms with the fact that I will never ever understand. Now you may call this trivial, but until we get to heaven, nobody will really know why those Israelites had to march around Jericho all those times before the walls would fall, even after God promised them that they would conquer the land? Why do they have to march so many times? Why was it that number and not a different number? It doesn't make any logical sense. There's no human understanding that I have found that we can apply to this to say, oh, I understand the wavelength God was on when he told them to do it just that way. Nobody really understands why Naaman had to dip down in that muddy Jordan water seven times before he got his healing that God wanted him to have or he would have never gotten it. If it wasn't the will of God for Naaman to be healed, Naaman would have never been healed no matter how many times he dipped. 
So why was it seven times and not one time? Why was it seven times and not ten times? We have no, no logical sense to, to understand why it would be that way. When Joash strikes the arrows three times on the ground, why is he rebuked by Elisha for only doing it three times? And he only gets a partial victory when he was never instructed, at least in Scripture, on how many times to strike the arrows. He never got that instruction. He did it more than once. There's some things about this book that I'm thankful to God for everything I do understand. But there's some things that, like the song says, we're just going to have to understand better by and by. We can speculate for sure, but we don't, we don't know if we're truly ever, even in heaven, going to understand and get all the answers to this. We don't understand why God seemingly leaves so much up to us. Why does he leave so much up to us? Over and over and over and over in Scripture, even though it's the expressed desire of God to bless and to deliver his people, he says, this is what I want to do. We have examples of him adjusting his level of blessing and adjusting his level of deliverance in accordance with the level of desire shown by his people. We will never understand why God values faith to the level that he does. We'll never understand why he values it like he does. But we cannot deny that the currency of the miraculous is and always will be in faith. The faith that it took for Naaman to dip in the Jordan River the first time hear me, was far less than the faith that it took him to dip in the seventh time after six attempts of going down in that muddy water in front of everybody and coming up no different than he went down in. It took so much more faith the sixth time to go down again for that seventh time because he had all those times before that it didn't do nothing weighing down on him. The first time, sure, I'll give it a try. The prophet said, do it. But then you come up out of the water the same way you came. What do you want to do? In his flesh, he had to be thinking, this doesn't make any sense at all. Why would he even ask me to do this? There's no healing power in the Jordan River. This isn't going to work. I look ridiculous. I'm a grown man dipping in the river. This is stupid. What are they going to say if I get to seven and I'm just like I was? Now I'm the leper that just dipped in the water for no reason. Next they'll be telling me to do this and this. It's not like the prophet was even from his own country. This would be a great prank for Elisha to pray on, right? I mean, it's got to be going in the back of his mind a little bit. What if this doesn't work? The faith it took the Canaanite woman to ask Jesus to save her daughter was great for certain. But it was not so great a faith that Jesus couldn't deny and ignore. Right? 
It was a great faith to go to God as a Canaanite who wasn't, who wasn't a Jew and go to him and say, I want you to save my daughter. I believe you can. That's some faith. But it's not a faith to the level that Jesus can't say, yes, but it's not good for me to cast the children's bread to the dogs. But the faith it took her to turn around and go back and persist and ask again even after he had denied her and in many regards insulted who she was was so much greater a faith. No, we'll never understand why Jesus turned her away that first time. But we do understand that he was testing her faith. And at the point that she persisted and at the point she stepped into a greater realm of opportunity Operating in faith, God answered her prayer. God doesn't just give us things because we want them. Now that's not revelatory to anybody. God doesn't just give us things because we want them. But I'll go a step further and tell you tonight that God doesn't just give us things because He wants us to have them either. It's not just what we want, and it's not just what God wants for us. But God answers prayers in accordance with our faith, according to His will. The only way we see the promises of God truly continue to unfold in our life is when we are operating in faith according to His will. It's the will of God for everyone to be saved, yet no one will be saved unless they step out in faith at some point. It doesn't matter how much you want it or I want it if we just sit around and talk about it, but there's some things we must do. In our text, Isaiah has received a promise from God, but he doesn't rest easy on this promise, quite the contrary. Isaiah says, I have set watchmen on the walls and I have given them specific instructions. I told them never hold their peace. They will never keep silent. They're going to keep praying day and they're going to keep praying at night and they're not going to let God get any rest until he does exactly what he promised that he would do. And when I look at that verse and I compare it to what I do understand about Scripture, I am so convicted when I come into the house of God today. Because could it be that if you and I are not willing to become the watchman on the wall and pray continually and pray fervently day and night for God to do all that He would promise in our lives and more importantly in this city and in our communities and in our homes, that we will miss out on all the miraculous things and all the things that He has promised us that He would do. Just because God wants it for us does not mean that we will have it. I don't understand if you're asking me this. I don't have an answer for you why God requires us to be persistent in prayer. Even when we're praying for things that he has already promised. Any more than I understood why Naaman had to dip in that Jordan water seven times instead of just one time. But I've come to tell you on a Wednesday night that if we intend to see all that God has promised us come to pass... And if we intend to see God do an unprecedented work in the city of Jonesboro concerning prayer, we better not become a silent church.
We better not hold our peace about the promises of God. We better not be content not having a prayer life. We better not be content letting that slip by far from it. Because it's the will of God for us to come boldly before the throne of grace in prayer. Continually, day and night, giving God no rest until He established what He said that he would establish. That's the words of Isaiah when God promised him. God made him a promise. He said, I will do it. And, God, and Isaiah said, well, I'm going to hold you to it. It's not that Isaiah had the Lord's hand tied behind his back, but for every day that that promise had not came to pass. Isaiah had one more day praying on that wall that it would come to pass. For every day that passed and it didn't happen, Isaiah had another day that when he got up and when he went to bed, he said, I still believe that it will happen. That's faith. It's not a lack of faith. It is faith. You say, I prayed for it one time already. That should be enough. Well, maybe. But tell that to Joash striking the arrows on the ground. Tell that to the Israelites after their first day of marching around Jericho. Tell that to Naaman after his first dip in the river Jordan. Tell that to Elijah after praying once for it to rain again. Tell it to the woman pleading before the unjust judge. Tell it to the Canaanite woman who brought her daughter's need before Jesus. Sometimes, no matter what your faith feels like in that moment, one time is just not enough. If you want an answer for it, I don't have an answer for it. But over and over and over in Scripture, Jesus said, if you will do it again, that will better show me the faith that you have for it. There is a level of the miraculous that can only be unlocked through faithful persistence in prayer. And you are far too late to tell me tonight that it does not take more faith to pray again after you've prayed and seemingly nothing happened. After you've dipped in that muddy Jordan water of prayer and come up nothing but wet. And maybe when you pray every time the heavens open up and you hear an audible voice from God, but if I'm honest with you, sometimes when I pray, I even want to doubt in my flesh the verse that says God hears my prayers. When you dip down in that water, sometimes you come up like Naaman did the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth time. Nothing. And all you want to do is think, well, prayer ain't going to fix this. This isn't going to work. No, sir. No, ma'am. We don't have it quite right when we say that, though. It's just that one prayer isn't going to get it solved, sure. But I have learned from Scripture that God values faithful persistence in prayer. So you prayed for the answer 70 times and had nothing happen. Well, why don't you rejoice with me tonight then? Because that's 70 the fewer times that you've got to go down in that Jordan water of prayer before the answer comes. No, we don't understand it tonight. But each time we're willing to go just one more time, we are unlocking another dimension of faith in our lives. Don't we dare hold our peace concerning prayer. 
It's in name it and claim it preaching. I'm not talking about praying for your million dollars and bothering God day and night about that. That's not what Isaiah was telling his people to do. God gave them a specific promise. And when Isaiah told him to pray, he said, I want you to pray for this specific thing to come to pass that God told us to do. So when we're talking about praying like this, we're talking about praying the promises of God. And if we want everything that God has promised this church, we can't just settle for praying one or two piddly prayers now and then. But we have got to grab a hold of God's word with all we have. And we've got to put these promises in this book deep down into our heart and pray that promise as Isaiah said day and night. And until the Lord does it, we say, I still believe that it's going to come to pass. Sometimes that prayer is not so much for God, but it's for you and I to say, I know I haven't seen it yet, but I still believe. Don't hold your peace concerning prayer. Acts chapter 2 verse 17. A great promise we quoted. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Luke 5.32 Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Sanctuary church, we better not hold our peace concerning praying for the lost. I know God will not violate someone's free will. He won't. Sure, we say, we talk about Paul or Saul on the road to Damascus, but Saul wanted to live right. He was living as wrong as you could, but he thought he was doing right. God wasn't violating his free will. He was just telling him what was actually going on, giving him a picture of with all the facts in it. God's not going to violate somebody's free will, and, and that's not what I'm saying. And I know that you and I, we can't live this for anybody. I know that people can still turn their backs on God. But you better believe that, that I still believe we should fall to our knees and pray that God will continue calling sinners to repentance No, they may never answer the call. They may never answer the call. But Lord, don't stop pulling on their spirit simply because I fell silent on their behalf. Sometimes it's not enough if God wants it. But we have to join together and say, I still believe, God, that you're calling sinners to repentance. And when I get up in the morning and when you go to bed at night, we ought to pray that God would still call people to repentance. We'd do well to remember that the only difference between us and a backslider is how long it takes us to repent. It may take you like Paul just one day. He said, I die daily. And it might take him 50 years to ever get it right. But God, don't stop calling them. Don't don't harden their heart, God, but continue to call them to repentance. I pray that God would pour out His Spirit on this city. That as people respond to the call of repentance, that they would be filled with the Holy Ghost. 
If we don't see thousands upon thousands saved in the city of Jonesboro, let it be because those people refuse to respond to the call. But let it not be because we refuse to respond to the call to pray. Let it not be because we fell silent and held our peace concerning that promise of God that He would do it. Or there's still watchmen on the wall praying for this stuff. We are all here tonight on the back of the prayers of those who came before us. Either mothers and fathers, grandmothers and grandfathers, pastors, youth workers, Sunday school teachers who in an altar prayed or maybe knelt over a bed at night or washing dishes or driving their car said, God, I know I can't ever live it for Clinton. I can't live it for him. And I know you can't either, but I pray that you would call him to repentance again. He ain't living quite right right now. And I pray that you would call him again. Pour out your spirit on him again. Renew that. Give him another opportunity to be in your presence. If God has promised us end time revival, if we believe that God is going to pour out His Spirit in a greater way than we have ever seen before, then we have an obligation to pray for it as we have never prayed before. Don't hold your peace concerning the lost. Don't hold your peace concerning prodigals. Don't hold your peace concerning revival. But join in prayer and tell God it doesn't matter that I've prayed for Him before and they didn't come back but I'm praying that they have another chance I'm praying that you will call them again Matthew chapter 9 verses 36 through 38 but when he saw the multitude he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd Then he said unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. If we're going to pray for God to call the lost to repentance, and if we're going to pray for him to pour out his spirit, we have also got to pray that he would send laborers into the harvest. What good would it do for God to send this church the greatest revival of souls that this world has ever seen if we didn't have laborers ready for the harvest? What good would it do us if we saw the whole city of Jonesboro receive the Holy Ghost but had no no idea of what to do with them, no idea with how to help them, no idea of what to do? We need laborers. We need laborers. I believe with all my heart that God is getting ready to blow this thing up in this city. And we're going to see sanctuary church and, and the faith grow at an unprecedented and supernatural rate. But if we believe this, we better not fall silent and hold our peace concerning God sending laborers into the harvest. You say, well, Jesus can call whoever He wants. And sure, that's true. But He first called us to pray about it. It's not enough that He wants it. 
You understand that it was Jesus that told us to pray about it. It's not enough that we want it in our brain and he wants it, but we have to pray about it. To take that step of faith in prayer. I pray that for this church and from this church, God would call and send forth laborers. I pray that the burden that Pastor and Sister O'Connell feel for the people of this city wouldn't be on their shoulders alone, but it would be shouldered by this church as we pray for this city. Let it be that this is not just a one man and one woman show at this church. But it truly is God's church and His bride reaching for the lost. Send laborers who have a heart for people. Send laborers who have a heart for service. Send laborers who will teach Bible studies. Send laborers who will serve as ushers and, and park cars. Send laborers that will pray with people in the altar. Send laborers who will follow up with guests. Send laborers who will invite somebody to church with them. Send laborers who will invite somebody to lunch with them. Send laborers who will witness to friends at school and at work. Send laborers for Sunday school and for the praise team. Send laborers to preach and edify the church. Send laborers to shake hands and hug necks. And that ain't the half of it. Send laborers. The harvest is too big for us not to pray for God to send help. That's what Jesus is telling us. He said, however big you think it is, you ain't got a clue. You don't have a clue what I'm trying to do. You need to pray for more help. Don't get mad if somebody else comes in the church and has your gifting. Don't get mad if somebody else comes in and starts doing what you like to do. God is not demoting you. He's sending laborers because of the revival that's coming. It's bigger than we can handle on our own. God help us if we think we have all the help that we need. Help our small vision if we think we can handle it just with what we've got right now. But I pray God would send a hundred more youth workers to Sanctuary Church. And I pray that the harvest is so big that we need every single one of them. And if we don't believe that, we have got to get our eyes off of a position and off of a title and get them on the field of 80,000 plus in this city who need Jesus Christ. We better not hold our peace on this. We better not drop the ball when God asks us to pray for this. When we get up in the morning and when we go to bed at night, we better pray that God would send laborers. Put it on their heart. Put it on their heart. Maybe they're just sitting on a pew right now. Maybe they're just saints in the church, but put it in their heart to serve you and join in laboring for your kingdom. Send laborers to your service. Finally, if we want to see everything that God has for us, we better not hold our peace about God building his kingdom. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10.
Matthew chapter 6, 9 and 10. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. We must pray that we would see God's kingdom come in our lives. God, let your kingdom come in our hearts and let it come in our homes. Let your kingdom come in our schools and in our workplaces. Let your kingdom come in our church and in our city. Let every idol of our heart be taken down and let every hobby and pursuit fall into its proper place. Jesus promised that he would build his church and that the gates of hell wouldn't be able to stand against it. So when we rise up in the morning and when we lay our head down at night, let us be those ever praying watchmen on the wall, reminding God of his promise that he would establish the church, reminding him that it's his kingdom that we're trying to build and it's his kingdom that we're seeking. If we try to build sanctuary church based on what you and I can do, we are doomed to fail. If we try to build it on our talents, it ain't going to work. Unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. This thing is so much bigger than you or I. This thing is so much bigger than what we can do on our own. And we're getting ready to build and it's going to be awesome and I'm excited for it. I'm, I'm going to be a minute from the church. I'll be able to walk out my front door. Y'all don't all come and visit, please. But I'll be able to walk out my front door, and if I didn't want to drive, it wouldn't take me no time. Nobody's more excited about this new church than I am, perhaps maybe David and Melba. I don't know if they, if anybody lives closer than them, but they're a few houses down from me, so that means they got to walk just a little less than I would. But nobody's more excited about this church, I feel like, than I am. I'm, I'm, I believe that it's going to be a great thing. We need it, and I believe God has ordained it. But we better not start acting like we've arrived when we just build a building. Because if we're satisfied in prayer with having a building alone, God will let us be satisfied. No, that's not what He wants. That's not the extent of what He wants. And by our lip service, that's not what we want. But if it's truly not, we better bend our knee in prayer and not hold our peace concerning Him building His church. I wonder if there are some watchmen on the wall tonight that say, God, you promised that you would establish your church, and I'm praying that you would continue to do it. The building that we are preparing to build will not forever be able to contain the revival of souls that God wants to send. It won't. I love it. It's the right building at the right time. This moment is right. I'm not challenging this moment. In the same way that when the Israelites stepped foot out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea, they were in the wilderness, and that wilderness was the right moment for them at the time. But it was not the right moment for them forever. And I'm not saying the new building is the wilderness, but you understand my point. We are, we are going in God's direction, but we have not yet arrived, and it's not a stopping point. But I refuse to be small-minded about God's plan for this church. A 350-member church is no small thing. 
But in a city of 80,000 people, I'm not praying that this church touches 300 lives. Not when there are so many, many, many more people who need Jesus. I will not be satisfied with striking this arrow of prayer just one time only or just three times only. But we will continually go to God day and night for Him to build His kingdom. God, let Your kingdom come in this city. Build Your church. Let us be people that will not hold our peace musicians can come we ought to not be settled in our soul for a 300 person revival and that's awesome it's awesome we should celebrate it if it happens we should shout about it if it happens we should give him all the glory in the world if it happens but we should not stop praying for it if it happens when he said he would pour out his spirit on all flesh, I do not believe for a New York second that he meant 300 people in Jonesboro. When he said that he's going to build a church that the gates of hell can't prevail against, I do not believe he's just talking about another building. It's got to be more than that. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know it's more than that. Build a church in Jonesboro that shakes the gates of hell in this city. That prays and labors to pull people up out of the pit of despair. Build a church, God, for all manner of people that transcends divides that separate us if we can stand together. God, build a church that doesn't care about class, doesn't care about race, doesn't care about culture, doesn't care about your finances. Build a church that looks like His church and not my church. Build a church that would make you and I uncomfortable. Because it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Him building His. And God help me if I am not willing <laughs> to bow my knee when I get up in the morning. And when I go to bed at night and throughout my day and pray for Him to do these things that He's promised. Build a church for the single parent. Build a church for the atheist. Build a church for the doubting. God, build a church for the broken. Build a church for the addicted. Build a church for the homosexual. Build a church for the business owner. Build a church for the rich. And build a church for the poor. Build a church that can reach all people. And if I'm honest, that is not my church. And it will never be my church. But it's His church. And that's what He wants. And that's what He's promised. And the only thing we have left to do is join with Him in labor. And join with Him in prayer. I pray that in this service, in the next few moments, we're going to pray these three things. We're going to pray that God is going to call sinners to repentance.
that he's going to call prodigals home. No, they might not respond, but that's not going to keep us from praying for them again. Maybe they're living like the devil himself, but that's not going to keep this church from praying for them again. That's what Jesus came for. And that's what his church is going to pray for. We're going to pray that he's going to call sinners to repentance. We're going to pray that he's going to call laborers into the field. And if you're in this building tonight and you're not serving in this church, know that we want you to be able to serve. We want you to be able to take part in that. But we're not just praying for people here, but we're praying that God will prepare people to come in that have abilities and have a way that they can help. And third, we're going to pray that God is going to build His kingdom in this city. That He's going to build the church not to my specifications. Not to the dimensions that I want. That doesn't just include the people that I would want. But includes the people that God wants. And reaches the people that God wants. Why don't we all come forward toward the altar? We want to pray together. But let's, let's take that first step in faith. If you believe that God will do it, step out from where you are. Show Him your faith by that first step. Say, God, I'm not just going to sit where I am, but I'm taking you at your word that you will do this stuff. Let's pray together that He would call sinners to repentance. God, we pray that across this city and across this state of Arkansas that You would begin calling people again back to prayer, back to Your Spirit. That people far from You, people that are so far from a church today would feel You calling on them again. People who have never felt You before would feel it in their spirit to let's go have a, a at that church. Let's go see what this is all about. God, move on the atheist. Move on the backslider. Move on the broken. Move on those far from you. I know that they can choose to do what they want with it, but I pray that you wouldn't harden their heart, but I pray that you wouldn't let them be tender and able to, to perceive your spirit moving on them. I pray that you would begin as people repent to pour out your spirit across this city and across this church that as people come to the altar that there would not be any hindrance in them receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost but that you would remove any roadblocks that you would remove any fear and that you would remove any pride and let your spirit be poured out upon all flesh that it would be in an unprecedented way that in every every corner of this church, from the front to the back, that people would feel you and people would experience you in a powerful and mighty way. Let's pray that God would send laborers into the harvest. God, if I am not doing everything that I can do for you, let me be convicted about that. If I'm not praying like I ought to be praying for the harvest, let me feel that conviction in my heart. Let it settle on this place. If we are not putting our hands to your work in the manner that we ought to, let us feel that conviction and respond to it today. But beyond that, I pray that you would call labor 
laborers into your harvest. I pray that you would call Sunday school teachers and choir singers and directors. I pray that you would call youth workers and ministers and preachers. I pray that you would call parking lot attendants. And I pray that you would call ushers and, and custodians. I pray that you would call all manner of people to serve in your kingdom. I pray that you would equip people to teach Bible studies and you would equip people to witness and give them the boldness in their heart to do it. I pray that you would put it on us to invite people to lunch and to do the things that are required to build and sustain your church. And finally, we pray that your kingdom would come in this place. God, we pray over every area of our lives first that you would let your kingdom come in our heart. Let there be no idol that we lift up above you. Let there be no hobby that we pursue more than we pursue you. Let there be no thing that we have that keeps us from, from serving you like we ought to. Let your kingdom come in our workplace, in our school, and in our homes. Let every marriage be a testament to the grace and the power of God. Let every te marriage be a testament to you and the relationship you have to your bride, the church. Let this church be representative of what heaven is going to be like. Let this church church be a safe haven for every race, for every culture, for every tongue, for every background, for every... <laughs> for every class of people in this city. Let this not be a church that only targets a certain demographic, but let this be a church that is no respecter of persons. And concerning your church, let the ground be level at the foot of the cross. Let us not put up any roadblocks and hindrances in you having your way in this city. God, but have your way in this church. Build it. Build a church in Jonesboro that hell can't stand against. Build a church in Jonesboro that our own desires can't stand against. Build a church in Jonesboro that impacts not just this city, but the world. Build a church that gives to missions. Build a church that loves the lost. Build a church that it keeps the faith. In Jesus' name we pray.